Streaming now only on Peacock. Five rich and famous international soccer stars. They have everything except love. I think girls in the past have gone for me because of what I've got. That's why we're going undercover. We're setting them up with single American women. They don't know we are famous. They don't know we are rich. And they'll have to hide their true identity. What do you need for work? I'm an ad salesman. (laughs) Oh, God. What am I doing? Love Undercover. New series streaming now only on Peacock. There's no place like the movie theater. The smell of fresh popcorn welcomes you to a full body experience while candies and sodas compete for your attention. Hoping to join you in the best seats you've reserved on Fandango. It's where movie lovers buy tickets, pick seats, and double up on rewards points all online. All that's left is to walk in, snack up, and sit back. Visit Fandango.com or download the app today for your ticket to the movies. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, live from the NFL Owners Meetings. In Phoenix, Arizona, at the stately Arizona Biltmore Hotel. Meetings just wrapping up as I record this Tuesday night on the grounds of the Biltmore. So in the podcast this week, we will have Kyle Shanahan, the head coach of the San Francisco 49ers, uh, and also uh, some snippets from the coach's breakfast, uh, where I recorded a couple of shorter conversations uh, with Sean Payton, the coach of the Saints, and uh, with Andy Reid, the head coach of the Kansas City Chiefs. Also, a conversation with Tom Curran of NBC Sports Boston, mostly about the post-Gronkowski New England Patriots. But first, you know, I want to talk about something that uh, really stunned me, and I think stunned a lot of the media uh, in Phoenix for the annual NFL meetings. Um, and let me just set, set the stage for this. On Tuesday night, a vote was passed. 31 in favor, one against. The NFL needs three-quarters of the owners in the league, three-quarters of the teams in the league, to vote for any bylaw proposals, such as the one that was passed on Tuesday night. And that bylaw proposal essentially will make for one year only, the 2019 season, it's a conditional uh, approval. For one year only, now the reviewable plays and instant replay will include offensive or defensive pass interference, whether the plays are called on the field or not called on the field. What this means is that for the first 28 minutes of each half, a coach can use one of his two challenges in the course of a game on an, a pass interference call, either offensive or defensive. Now, in the last two minutes of each half, that will go just like any other foul to a booth review. If there is an obvious, if the replay official believes that there is uh, an obvious uh, or, or a close call about offensive or defensive pass interference, that call will then be subject to the same booth review that scoring plays are subject to or anything in the last two minutes of either half. So that was the big news. Here's the reason why I believe this is so significant. It's because on Sunday night, Troy Vincent, the NFL's executive vice president of football operations, told me uh, 
that he asked for a show of hands at the initial meeting of the 32 teams here on Sunday. He asked for a show of hands. How many are in favor of allowing uh, plays that are not flagged on the field to be eligible for replay reviews? And he told me at the time that it was only a handful. I found out later it was approximately five. Five teams basically raised their hands and said, we're in favor of this. And yet 48 hours later, 31 teams voted in favor of allowing coaches to replay during the first 28 minutes of either half, allowing a challenge flag to be thrown even when there isn't a flag thrown on the field. It's, it's really a revolutionary deal, in my opinion. Um, and I think two things happened to make this basically turn around. Number one, Roger Goodell said to membership um, during the impassioned discussions about this, uh, Goodell uh, just finishing a press conference in Arizona, Uh, He admitted, I felt strongly we should have offensive pass interference and defensive pass interference considered as part of replay. So the commissioner obviously wanted this to happen. I had heard this all along at the scouting combine a month or so ago. I was told by a member of the competition committee, Roger Goodell will not allow us to leave the NFL meetings in Arizona without this being addressed. That came true tonight. Number two, Sean Payton, the coach of the uh, New Orleans Saints. You know, it's so funny, the the rivalry that Sean Payton and Roger Goodell have had over time. Sean Payton obviously was suspended for a season um, in the uh, Bounty Gate scandal involving the New Orleans Saints. Uh, And obviously he was angered. He will never forgive the NFL for this. Um, and uh, he is a bit of a let bygones be bygones guy, but he's also a competitor, and he will never forget this. Similarly, uh, he felt that the league did not do a good job of handling uh, the post-NFC championship game controversy involving the flag uh, uh, that was not thrown on an obvious pass interference call that could well have sent the New Orleans Saints, not the Los Angeles Rams, to the Super Bowl uh, just two months ago in February. So I think now we look at this and say basically uh, dogs and cats have become very good friends. Roger Goodell, Sean Payton on the same side, both pushing hard, both politicking hard to the point where uh, after Sean Payton got out of the meeting where the final vote was taken uh, very late Tuesday afternoon in Phoenix, He got hugs. He got high fives. His owner, uh, Gail Benson, hugged him and gave him a hearty congratulations. Uh, And talking to other coaches coming out of that room, they credited Sean Payton uh, for what happened. I'm going to write a little bit in my column, so please look for it next Monday, about the role also that Jason Garrett, the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys, played uh, in sort of pushing this through. Uh, It's sort of a long involved story, but Jason Garrett, give him credit too for having the gumption, having the guts, and basically making a very good, tight, um, and impassioned speech um, 
urging the owners to uh, to pass something to correct an obvious wrong. So the news here from Phoenix, uh, it could create a can of worms. I know there are still teams in the league that believe it will open a big can of worms uh, to allow instant replay now in on offensive and defensive pass interference calls. It never would have happened without the non-call in the NFC Championship game. My view of this is that it is an excellent thing. I thought it was going to be a mistake to leave here to not address this because if it happened again, and it could happen again, uh, who's to say? It, I'm not predicting that it will happen again, but it could happen again. And there is a protection in this for those who will say, oh my God, the games are going to be four hours long. No, no, no. The reason that the games are not going to be four hours long is very simple. They're not expanding the number of times a coach can throw his challenge flag. They're not. So I don't believe that the time of game will be up appreciably at all. And as Peyton himself has pointed out, now in the middle of the second quarter, you have an eight-yard gain and you're wanting to know whether a guy's knee was down. Are you going to throw a challenge flag there or are you only going to save your challenge flags for significant, uh, potentially game-changing uh, calls that you want to have insurance that you can appeal. So, really interesting day. It looked like that this was going to be a pretty sleepy set of NFL meetings. It got very exciting Tuesday, and we finally had some news. I think that for once, if I'm a resident of the city of New Orleans, if I'm a big, big Saints fan, I'm bowing my head and I'm saying thank you for at least trying to get this play right. And now my conversation with San Francisco coach Kyle Shanahan. Back on the Peter King podcast from the NFL meetings in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. I'm with Kyle Shanahan, the uh, head coach of the 49ers. Kyle, uh, when I look at where you guys are as a team, it's almost like you're a one-question team. How is Jimmy Garoppolo? So... You can't have a lot of contact with your players now, obviously, until, for you, the middle of April. But what's your understanding of, of Jimmy Garoppolo's health right now, and do you think he's going to be able to come back strong? Oh, there, yeah, there's no, no doubt about it. I mean, people tear ACLs, especially at the quarterback position. I mean, that's not going to change how he throws and how he plays. Now, he missed a lot of valuable playing time last year, so that's the stuff that he needs those reps. He needs that experience. He needs to go through some ups and downs of an NFL season, which we were hoping to get last year, and um, unfortunately we didn't, but we know we will get that this year. And, you know, you talk about how far along is he. I mean, probably as far as long as I could say of anyone – that I've seen with an ACL. You know, I get to watch him out of my window every day. The, the neat thing about guys having to go through rehab and stuff is they're in our building now all the time. Yes, we can't talk football and stuff, but I can sit and watch him on the field from my office and things like that. And he's doing drops. He's throwing the ball to where uh, it's funny, like, because I'll talk to Jed or John and uh, we'll all see him outside and they'll come down and be like, is he 100%? And it's no, he's, he can do that all in air. It's slow drops and throwing and he looks great doing that. But uh, we got to make sure that he can be in a pocket. People are diving around his legs and things like that and he can protect himself and uh, we're not there yet but we'll be there by training camp um how 
devastating when you look back on it was that day in Kansas City when he got hurt. It's funny, not so funny, but Jed York, your owner, said this week that when he found out about the torn ACL, he punched a wall. Um, how did you deal with it, and how do you avoid not really going in the tank when something like that happens? Um, it 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 takes time, you know. Right when it happens, you're so caught up as a coach and in the game, like it doesn't it doesn't hit me during the game, and it doesn't hit me right after the game. It it hits me, you know, on the plane when I get to sit and really think about um, what that means. Uh, you know, it was, it was an upsetting game. We we got off to a bad start and we were down a ton. I for almost I want to say 35-0 at halftime, um, and we got within seven and um, thought they made a very questionable call that they took back. So we were worked up about that, and then um, Jimmy, we find out. Um, about with a minute left that he did tear it and it's you go on with the rest of the game and you get in the locker room and you talk about it and it's um, it takes time it hurts the players a little bit too because anytime you lose your quarterback I mean that's that's a big deal as everyone knows and but everyone has to step up they got to rally around the next guy and, um, and you move on and uh, hopefully the team got better with them out and now we'll add him to it and we'll be better from it when you look at your first two years it must be such a bummer to say to look at your record and you've won 10 games in two years and each year you had significant hopes particularly last year with the quarterback each year you had significant hopes that were sort of dashed by injury both years and performance obviously but so how do you look at your program after two years um, it's very much has gone how we anticipated. You know, I'd love to win a couple more games. I mean, I, I would like, I'd like to win a lot more games. <laughs> but, um, you know, the first year um, went very much as anticipated. I didn't think we'd start out 0-9, but I definitely didn't think we were going to finish 6-10. and You know, I thought um, we did a little bit better than I anticipated. You know, you never want to think that way. Um, but we had, had a very good grasp of what we were coming into, the situation. That's why it was so important uh, for John and I to come in on the same page to get the deals that we had because we wanted to do this the right way and we knew it would take time. Uh, you know, I thought the way we ended our first year got everyone a little more excited than they should have been. Um, uh, wasn't that, you know, I think we were pretty realistic. You know, we won uh, five in a row to finish the season and we knew we had gotten a lot better, but we weren't, we hadn't arrived yet. And so we were excited to go into this year and compete to where I felt if uh, we stayed healthy and everything. You have a chance to be you're an eight and eight team, and if you're an eight and eight team, you can go twelve and four. Uh, you can you can also go five and eleven. It happens very fast. And uh, we lost two of our biggest players really before the season started with Jet and then Jimmy in the third game, and that made it tough. And I do think our guys, I think in a lot of areas, we were better this year than last year. Our record didn't show that, and I do believe, despite those injuries, I, I do believe we should have won a couple more games. Uh, but we get those guys back. We're continuing to add. We did in free agency. We on the draft here and I feel very excited about where we're at in year three and uh, much further along than these last two years. Don't you think that one of the great advantages that you have is that you were able to sign a six-year contract before you took this job and it's right about now that regardless of how you got to 10 and 22 a lot of coaches would be feeling major heat and I get the feeling from you know from Jed York that it's preposterous to even think of changing coaches, even after three years, regardless what happens this year. But that was part of why you did what you did. Isn't that correct? You know, doing yeah, a six-year de deal. Definitely. And it's, um, you know, that, that can work both ways. But it's, you know, the whole... 
I, I, my goal in my, my whole life is to be a head coach, uh, but you want to stay a head coach. Yeah. And I was in a very good situation in Atlanta. It wasn't that I just had to leave somewhere. You want to go to a situation that you feel is good and you can make it work. And when you look at where teams are at certain times, you realize, all right, you can you can get lucky and just do a bunch of stuff and it's hit or miss. But I, we, we don't really want to get lucky. We, we want to do it the right way. And in order to do the right way, you got to be patient. And um, when an owner does give you a contract like that, I mean, that doesn't mean that you, you're going to get that, but it, it but it shows that they mean what they say in terms of, hey, no, we really do want to do this right way. We know we're going to have to make some big decisions, and um, we, we know this could take long, um, but it, it shows, you know, everyone's, it's always good in the interviews. Um, yeah. You yeah. know, everyone says they're patient, they know where they are, um, but when a guy does then offer you a six-year contract and then general manager, it's like, all right, he really does believe that way, and uh, that's how it's been for us for three years, and I feel like that's why we have... Uh, made some good decisions. Not all the, not always. They didn't always end up being the right decision. Right. But our process through it and what what we did, our intentions on it. I felt we've done it the right way. I think we'll continue to do it the right way. And um, when you do things right for a long period of time, uh, usually good things happen in this league. You made some changes to your to your training staff and to uh, you know obviously you've had these injuries, the Jarek McKinnon injury which you referred to. You've had some injuries that I assume as a coach must really bother you. So was there any commonality when you study what happened to you guys injury-wise that led to your decision to try to do some different things physically and, and, and yeah, I, I think you know, with would, your training staff? It would definitely be very unfair to um, people to blame those injuries on anyone. I mean, we had a great staff. I loved our strength coach. I loved our trainer. They're very good at what they do. Um, what we looked into is, you know, the, the method of just how you run a training staff and how you run the, the strength and conditioning program and how they're all connected in the rehab program. Uh, we just wanted to go a different direction on that where we wanted to, to kind of hire a guy to oversee it all, to pull them all together, to meet with these guys every morning. So um, the guy in rehab, um, when he's rehabbing Jimmy out and then Jimmy goes to the strength coach, they know exactly what they've been doing in yeah. separate parts. And then when they go to the training room, then they know what they're doing. And that's stuff you'd like to say a general manager or a head coach could be on top of, but you can't. you, you got to meet with coaches. John's got to meet with the personnel department. We're doing stuff day to day, and you can't always – every morning meet with all those groups and so we really wanted to bring in a guy that I always forget his title because I call it the head coach of training um, <laughs> so I, I know we call it something else but that's my simplified version and it's great because he meets with our strength coach our trainer um, the whole department they meet every morning they have plans with players they know where they are all day every day and it's just much more connected and I think that gives us a chance to maybe get an advantage um, on some other teams who aren't doing it that way. Kyle I after you had the job for a while, you never really know how a guy is going to take to a head coaching job. But I think one of the things that you did early on is, and I'm, I may be exaggerating at this, you almost tried to educate in a lot of ways the people who cover your team and the fans who might listen to your press conferences, you know, when they're streamed out. But you gave long, involved and not waste of time explanations, real explanations of why you were doing things. I find that a lot of coaches basically say, I have to be in this room for 20 minutes, let's just get it over with, and let me say nothing in this. You've said a lot, okay? So was that something you planned to do, that you thought to do, or what is your philosophy about interacting with the press and the public? 
I, I think that's just who I am. That's my personality. I, um, I'm not a very good actor. Um, and I, I know, I, I think I know enough about football to where I know what I don't want people to know and what I'm okay with people knowing. And I think a lot of people just don't want to mess up. And so they just go very black and white on that. Um, but I would have a very hard time in press conferences if I couldn't answer a question. If you were just trying to pass the time. Yeah, if I was just trying to pass the time, I think um, I would really struggle at it. I don't mind them as much because I feel like I can stay relaxed and answer questions honestly. And um, I think our, we, I think we have a great group in San Francisco. I think the media has been great. Um, you know, I know they are still going to challenge us and stuff, but I think they also respect when you are answering their question. And um, and if they ask something that's that I think will help a defensive coordinator playing against us or another team, and then I definitely won't answer it. But it's if it's not that case, I mean, I don't, I don't think I know much. So when someone's going to ask me about football, that's when I should talk because then I at least will know, what, sound like I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you two things about these meetings, okay? The more people I talk to here, the more I believe that it's very, very difficult to come to some conclusion to help fix instant replay that 24 owners will agree with. What has it been like for you sitting in on these meetings and listening to all the debates with all the coaches about all the different ways that people have ideas to fix replay? It's interesting. You know, everyone has a lot of good ideas um, and all of them are pretty close and um sometimes you got to really talk about what the differences are uh, so that's to me where it can get hard when you got a bunch of people with a bunch of good ideas and you're splitting hairs a little bit on which one's which i mean one might pass but not all six so uh, what's the best way to get it where this one i like all of it but five percent it's missing that that one has like and how do you join those together so those are the things that it's really close and a lot but it's However you try to articulate something or write it up in words, it's you're going to miss something. And so and that's the hardest thing because we everybody just wants common sense. Everyone wants what happened in the NFC championship game not to happen. And if it does, that we fix it like anyone in the world would say that was wrong. Let's get that fixed. Um, but that is tough to do when you're trying to cover a bunch of stuff that you don't know what the play is yet. And someone does have to write it up. Uh, they do have to put it on paper somehow. And that's where. That's where I struggle because I have no idea when we go lawyer talk or anything like that. I just know that if that happens, we should be able to fix that. And we got to allow someone to do that. And I think no one has a problem with that. But how do you actually go through the semantics of getting that done? Do you think it's going to get done? I do think it's going to get done before the season. I don't know if it'll get done today. I don't know if they'll table it till later. Um, but I do think with what happened, um, I, think our, I think our league is going to find out would, regardless of how deep we go into in, um, to challenging these and all this stuff, they're going to find out a way, I believe, to not let that happen again. We'll end on this. How much, what would you say is the, are the one or two things in the two years you've been on this job that you've learned that you believe have helped make you a better coach? Um, it's, it's funny because it's, it's 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 very when you say just to be a better coach is some of the same stuff I've gone through being a coordinator for nine years before being a head coach and having to do that in four different buildings and having to do it with a number of different quarterbacks. It's that you learn that there is no absolute answer. Like there's so many different directions you can go and you can have your preferences on a lot of things, but you have to deal with what's presented to you. Uh, whether it's a quarterback, whether it's who's available in free agency, um, who's there in the draft, uh, you always want 
you always have a vision of how you perceive something to be and it's never that way and you got to adjust so you always have to be learning you always have to be changing um because you, you don't just go to a grocery store and get a pick exactly what you want there's only certain things that are available we all have to deal with the salary cap that's what i've learned the most about just now going through free agency for a third year in a row it's it's very complicated and it takes you can't just cram it and study it in a week and think you got it you got to know how the, these decisions affect you how the the salary cap of draft picks compared to free agents and stuff and everyone wants to know like, why don't you go get this guy why don't you go get this guy this guy. we would love to he, you can't <laughs> you really can't and those when i was a position coach i was always sitting in my room also when the head coach and gm were doing stuff and i was like man why won't they just go get us that guy and it's because there's an issue there's money there's salaries it's, you know th this this occurred to me when you're talking about this i always look at the patriots and i say the thing i admire about them offensively and defensively is that every game plan is a snowflake every every time you might see something different and i'm curious you're watching the super bowl there's nine minutes left in the game patriots need a score and Josh McDaniels basically comes out, he puts Dwayne Allen in the game, Gronk in the game, Edelman in the game, Rex Burkhead. Uh, they go big in the backfield, and, right. the, and the fullback, Devlin. And th they hadn't, they hadn't had used that formation all through the playoffs. They hadn't used it one play. And here it is, the biggest series of their season, and they come out with it. And, and McDaniel's later says to he said to his team, "I don't know if this is going to work. We have to try this because what we're doing isn't working." And I'm wondering, when you see that as a coach, what do you think? I mean, that's that's what we get paid to do. That's that's what you do all year round. That's what you do every night that you're working. That's that's what we. I mean, that's what we live to do. It's about making adjustments. Did you it's, notice that when when it happened in the game? Yeah, that's all we look at, and yeah. it's you know I don't see it as a new formation or anything because there's every formation has been ran. You can't come yeah. up with a different way to move 11 guys around. New, new, new personnel the, grouping. The personnel is yeah. what changes everything, and that's everyone has their systems and what they do because you got. Whatever you do, you better be good at it. And the only way you get good at stuff is you work on it every day, all year round. That's the only yeah. way. So you can't just reinvent the wheel. It's got to be within your scheme. And I bet you they're doing the similar plays and stuff, stuff Tom knows that he's always ran. But now they're doing it with Burkhead instead of Edelman. Or it's just to mix yeah. guys up, and it's the same result. But, I mean, yeah, Edelman's a better route runner. But is Edelman versus Aqib Dalib better than um, Burkhead versus uh, their linebacker? Yeah. And those are the things that you got to think about. And that's why, um, you know, everyone looks at, I mean, like our running back situations last year. Like, I mean, we, we did want to get a receiver last year in free agency. And you looked at them and what that situation is. And then you look at Jeb McKinnon and what he could do. And it's, all right, we, we can get a running back and a receiver with him. And it's, you pair them all together and you see what the choices are. And then you try to build your roster that way. And uh, that's how you adjust and attack defenses throughout a year and that's what you do as coaches to try to make things easier on the players without reinventing the wheel kyle shanahan really appreciate you taking the time i do want to tell people just one very quick story when you and john lynch did your first draft you were gracious enough to invite me in the room and i saw how you guys worked and what i liked at that time is that and this is sort of a micro part of a macro story you liked a running back named Joe Williams in that draft who you guys didn't have high on your board because he had off-field issues. You talked to John Lynch. Lynch spent a lot of time the next day thinking about it, talking to Williams. You ended up picking him. It didn't work, right. okay? But what I thought was really cool about that is that John Lynch could have said to you, Kyle, 
we're not taking this guy. Think of somebody else who you really want, and I'll go to war for, uh, you know, we'll go to war for him. But that is what I think is kind of cool about the way, and I hear that you're still that way, you know. And in my opinion, if you don't operate that way, you have very little chance to win. But if you all operate like, hey, my head coach really wants this guy, so let's give him every opportunity to get this guy, and hey, it's not a first pick in the draft. It's whatever it was, a fourth-round pick. So let's do it that way. So is that still happening with you and John? Yeah, without a doubt. I I mean, if I really thought about it, I would know. But I really don't care what my contract says, and I don't care what John says. It's we, We're never going to have a player on our team that John tells me he doesn't want. And we're never going to have a player on our team that I tell John I don't want. It's, yeah. that's, it's not that. I mean, it's, we're going into three years, and that's not a problem. It's the, I mean, we all, we all got to work and be good at what we do and study it and, and have an eye for that stuff. But it's also why it's so important to know the type of person you're dealing with. And, and that's why I believed in John, um, even though he hadn't had the experience. I knew he was smart. I knew he'd been around football his whole life. I knew he had a, Yeah, you kind of had a shotgun marriage, but it's definitely. really, it's really it's, worked out. And it definitely was a shotgun marriage because it's not like... I mean, I worked in Tampa um, as a coach for two years, but I got there a, a week after John left. So we've never yeah. been in the same building together, but we've done a lot of um, our paths have crossed a number of times and uh, had a good feeling about the guy. And it, looked, it seemed like he had a good feeling about me, and um, it's been validated every day we've worked together. It's only gotten stronger, and I feel we both can get better for that. It's going to be fun to watch you guys this year. Kyle, thanks a lot for joining me. Thanks, Peter. Appreciate it. If you're looking to add some excitement to the tournament games, make BetDSI your tournament betting partner. BetDSI has been paying winners for 20 years. It's top rated on betting review sites. BetDSI has a very user-friendly interface, mobile site, and has the fastest payouts in the industry. You just play, you win, you get paid. BetDSI offers betting options for everything. Bet on March Madness, NBA, NHL, and all other major sports. Bet on politics. Bet on reality TV. I mean, everything is bettable on BetDSI. You can try live betting at BetDSI, where you can bet on games from start to finish. Every play, every minute until the end. New members get 100% bonus match using promo code KING, K-I-N-G. Once again... Go to BetDSI.com and use promo code KING, K-I-N-G, and get this limited-time 100% bonus offer to make some extra cash betting the madness this March. Get one free million-dollar contest entry just for signing up with promo code KING. It's only a game until you bet it at BetDSI. Now my conversation, a brief one, with Sean Payton. As you have traveled to the Caribbean, to L.A., to Indianapolis, and in New Orleans since the NFC Championship game, what has been the reaction to people you've run into, all of whom seem to have some sort of reaction about your game? Yeah, I would say this. Um, the reaction I've gotten this offseason, and, and mind you, I'm not 
really talking about Saints fans. What is what is interesting is how uh, how small our our world is relative to sports, probably relative to all news. Um, you know, it started, of course, at the combine, and every every Uber you get in or every Lyft driver you're with, um, you know, someone will look in the rearview mirror and then turn around, and and there's that. I feel so bad for you. What ha- you know. Th- that that happened 150 times this so far this <laughs> offseason. I'm gonna it's gonna happen again when I go to the airport today or tomorrow. Um, but then in the Bahamas, you think, all right, you know, we're gonna you know go on a vacation. It's gonna be quiet. And you get in the car and there's you know two looks and and then a strong opinion. You know, Turks and Caicos, and in each time you're in the car or you're meeting someone who's real passionate about our game and, and uh, obviously each time it's it's like listen it's all right you know uh, guys handled it we'll, we'll bounce back so but it is uh, you do realize how many people are watching our game and so I don't it's not it's not just the Saints game I think there are a lot of people paying attention to today's vote relative to um, are we comfortable with that happening again to another team or in our game? But I, it, se- it seems clear that that is not going to get the votes, that there are not 24 owners who will vote for allowing you to have a – allowing someone else to make a call who's not on the field. Well, look, there's – I don't know what's clear this morning. I know I'm a little foggy last night. We had another meeting – a, another competition committee meeting at uh, at seven o'clock last night, um, and uh, you know we spent time on another proposal. So we're gonna. There's four or five proposals that uh, are going to be discussed. I think probably one, maybe a second, that would correct. I know there's one that would correct what happened in our game, and then. Uh, obviously, you've got the, the foul that was called in the Chief game, you know, and so I do appreciate and recognize we, we want a game to have a rhythm to it, and, and if if we spend the whole game um, trying to get every play right, then there's a good chance it's probably not an entertaining game. Uh, I don't think I don't think three hours is this optimum time slot. Uh, you know, in fact, I've been told that it's more about less about time and more about um, no dead time. You know, in other words, if the exciting game went three hours and 20 minutes, everyone's happy. I don't know how long the Chief Patriot game lasted, and I don't know how long the Saints-Rams games lasted, but those were two exciting games. Um, so I don't know that anyone would look to see if it was 3.06 or... Uh, I, think, I think the pause and the dead time is certainly what our fans don't want, and by no means are or any of us advocating that. So we've got to work through it. There's, there's, there's so many things that we're doing now relative to our game, marketing-wise, uh, forward-thinking-wise. I think we need to begin to think a little bit more in the future than just this year and, and just put a side addition to the house to fix. I feel like each year, you know, we're, we're repairing one area, or, but I don't think there'd be 15, 20 people at this morning breakfast, and I don't think there'd be one 
change in a replay had not had that play not happened last year. I don't think we'd be talking about these proposals. In fact, I know we wouldn't be. So, um, Is it still your overarching opinion that officiating needs to be full-time and there needs to be absolutely. an overhaul of the officiating the way it's thought of in the NFL? Well, I think that word's kind of strong. Um, you know, they didn't used to wear hockey helmets for a long time in that sport. And I, was, I loved hockey. And then eventually they began the process of grandfathering the hockey helmet in. And many of you probably have not seen a hockey game without helmets on the players. Uh, but I do think, uh, looking ahead, um, I, don't, I would say I don't think most of our fans realize um, that many, most of, not all, but many, most of our current officials are, are all working you know, other jobs. The first official I ever met was Lou Palazzi in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and we met. My dad had taken me over to his florist shop, and he he was a florist. So they have careers. They have other jobs uh, that that they go back home to. And because look, we're not playing 82 games, and and and, and back then it made sense. But with the rate uh, of the way our game's gone, and the amount of field they're covering now. Um, I think there's a lot of things uh, that'll that'll have to take place in the next five years. I, I do a lot. And now a couple of questions with Andy Reid, the coach of the Chiefs. Andy, how long did it take you to get over the AFC Championship game? Yeah, so I get to. I can tell you, you can ask Matt Nagy this too, but um, I, I went back and I had Porter, my, my left-hand man, pull out. Um, that's your assistant. That's my assistant. Pull out the our schedule. Um, we don't have the dates when we play, but it tells you the teams. So I had him do that probably three days after the, after the game, and I circled the Bears. We play them at, you know, in Chicago. So I circled the Bears. And I called, I, I, I took a picture, texted it to Nagy, and I go, 2019 is on us right now, man. We're going to get out of our funk right now and stop feeling sorry for ourselves. And we're rolling, man. We are coming to Soldier Field, and the war is on. <laughs> and so he was going through the same thing. Doug was going through the same thing. Um, it happens. I mean, there's one team that's happy at the end of it, and that's Patriots right now. So... Um, the rest of us uh, were kind of uh, moping around for a little bit. I have an overtime-related question. You guys have obviously proposed something that doesn't sound like it's going to pass. Both teams possessing the ball. And I make this question when people say, play defense. Why in the history of overtime have 98% of the teams that won the toss to start overtime elected to take the ball first? So it yeah. does have meaning. Absolutely, it does. Um, uh, and right now, the offenses have never been greater, and that's the way the league wants it. The offenses have never been greater than they are right now in, in football history. And so um, give, both give both sides an opportunity. That was my feeling with our proposal. So, and you can argue that. Maybe the Ravens, well, the Ravens now have got a good quarterback, but the, the Ravens had a good defense. So maybe they don't have the same feeling 
as maybe we do, but give, give each team an opportunity. It just seems, it seems like the right thing to do. I've always felt this. It wasn't just because of this year. I've always felt that about this is not the first time this has been brought up. Overtime is one of those ones that's been discussed. You know, it's a chicken and the egg type deal. So um, it's been discussed a lot. And, uh, you know, that's, that's where I stood. When, when you look at Patrick Mahomes' first year playing, what do you think you learned about him last year that you didn't know, like under fire? What did you learn about the guy? Yeah, well, you, you know, you thought he was going to be a competitive guy by all the research and the way he was raised and so on. But you really don't know until you're there and, as they say, the bullets are flying and you're in that situation. We were in that situation. Most teams are in the National Football League. Most games are determined by seven points or less. So you're sitting there and you're going, how is this guy going to handle it? And he just grits down. It's a, it's a beautiful thing to watch. And, and uh, he, until, until that last play is over, he's going to try to rip your heart out. I mean, that's how he, and score and, that, and bring everybody with him. He's not a he's not a self promoter that way or a self shooter. He's gonna he wants everybody to pick their game up with him. What did he say to you, if anything, after the championship game and not getting a chance? <laughs> yeah, well, he would have loved a chance. I mean, because of the way he's wired. Um, you know, D Ford was offsides by four inches. We were all offsides by four. We were all off by four inches, right? All of us, and so we all could have done better. So that we weren't in that situation, and and handled the first half better than we handled it, and he felt that way. I mean, he he understands that, and and uh, would love the opportunity to get back there, and uh, and do a better job. You'll probably be a much different team. Everybody's a different team every year, but are you fearful or worried about maybe not having Tyreek Hill for most or yeah, part listen. of the year? The great thing about football is it's a team sport, um, and so whether a player is there or not there, uh, we keep rolling. You know, I mean that's how that's how we do. Taming the briar patch, mowing the lawn, or trimming yeti, whatever you call it, it's about time we talk about manscaping. Guys, you manscape, right? You know, I'm not the best manscaper of all. In fact, uh, I probably am a little bit foresty. But anyway, you need to keep things trim and fresh. Nine out of ten women of all ages prefer their guy Manscaped. But you got to have the right tools. So pop over to Manscaped.com. That's M-A-N-S-C-A-P-E-D. Put a D on the end of that. Manscaped.com. And check out their perfect package, the Manscaped Perfect Package 2.0 that was such a smash hit on Shark Tank. It features the lawnmower, a precision trimmer engineered for below-the-waist grooming. Check out the lawnmower and the amazing grooming and hygiene products that come with your perfect package. And get 20% off today, plus free shipping. Visit manscaped.com. M-A-N-S-C-A-P-E-D dot com and use promo code KING. Again, promo code KING 
at manscaped.com. And now my conversation with Tom Curran of NBC Boston about all things Gronkowski. Back on the Peter King Podcast, so happy to be joined by one of the veteran scribes turned TV maven, (laughs) um, Tom Curran of NBC Sports Boston. Yes. That's what I'm going to think because you have really created this little sort of fun niche for yourself. We're here at the league meetings. We're staring out at the lawn of the Arizona Biltmore Hotel. Um, Most stuff is done here, but I thought it would be really fun to have a conversation about a few things Patriot-related, starting with Rob Gronkowski, obviously, because when the Gronk thing happened on Sunday, we record this on Tuesday afternoon, and the Gronk thing happened on Sunday, and I saw you, and you didn't think that it was such an easy, clean, eh, I just don't want to play anymore. You think there might be some little tributaries to this decision that make it more than just the retirement of a star player. Yeah, Peter, and thanks for having me on. I think that Rob's last three years, really since 2016, there was an occasion where Dwayne Allen was signed to a contract with the Indianapolis Colts right around the beginning of the league year in 2016. At the same time, the Patriots picked up Gronkowski's option on the rest of his contract. And once they did that, Rob went from being the most handsomely paid tight end to a guy who was making actually, as he said in a tweet, looks like I'm taking a pay cut. So... 2016 to now, the financial aspect of football has been a concern for him. Also, he came into the league understanding his football mortality. As you know, Gordy Gronkowski, the Gronkowski family, took out insurance on him. The reason he went into the draft after having not played his sophomore year at Arizona was because their, their feeling was, well, listen, if you ever have a devastating injury and can't play anymore, we do want to get you that first NFL contract. So he's always had a sense of his football mortality. That sense of his mortality, coupled with the injuries, coupled with the arm break in 2012 and the infection that ensued and the back surgery and the knee and the ankle break that quite conceivably cost him the 2011 Super Bowl um, and the other back injury in 2016, all it weighed on him, I think, a great deal over the course of time. Don't you think he got more out of his physical self than almost any player. I, I think I, I said this to somebody the other day. I don't know anybody who got more out of a body that was battered and beat up. I don't know who got more out of more greatness, at least, uh, out of that out, out of his physical self than Rob Gronkowski did. I think that's fair to say, and I think that that's one interesting aspect of this because I asked him at the Super Bowl on the Wednesday prior to the game about the uh, the notion of fun because the team was miserable for a portion of the year. Rob was miserable in 2018. He felt he was being marginalized. He was hurt by the idea that the Patriots would actually trade him last year, which he kind of brought it on himself by, by going on wildcat strike you know, during the offseason, but he was hurt mentally. And I remember after the Kansas City game when he took over in the last few minutes, he embraced Tom Brady on the field. He said, thank you for going to me. And Brady looked at him and said, of course. What are you talking about? (laughs) And that's where he was. He felt he was being marginalized. He felt he was being overlooked. And 
so much of 2018 was feeling vulnerable physically, feeling vulnerable as far as what the team was going to do with him, feeling taken advantage of because he's playing for $9 million and never going to hit the five incentives that they put in front of him because of the structure of the team and the way things were going. So it was a mentally difficult, rigorous year for him. And I think that when you play the position he does, as opposed to an Odell Beckham or a Jarvis Landry or a Julio Jones or even a running back, you know you're going to have multiple defenseless shots on you at the size that he is, and those shots are going to come in the small of your back, top of your thigh, maybe your knee. They're not going to tackle you straight up. So he knows each week when he goes on the field, I'm going to have to run a number of routes in the seam where I might get hit by Earl Thomas and have a bruised lung. I might get hit by, uh, who was the kid? Uh, his dad, play, I think it was Eric Wright's son, plays for Miami. Is it TJ Wright? Former Niners. Yes, yeah, 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 right. He hit him three times in the Miami game, each one more devastating than the previous. Mm. And I saw Gronk, this is the last anecdote, <clears throat> after the Super Bowl, kind of lurked near his locker uh, to just hear from him directly what his plans were. And his locker was near the shower. And there was a dressing room, and I'm kind of just hanging there, and he's standing there, and, you know, you don't want to be looking into the shower. Right. It's, it's the weird thing about right. professional yeah. sports. You don't yeah. want to be, hi, how are you? But he, he sees me, I'm, I just came a, a wave. He goes, look at this. And he's wearing his jersey still and his jock. He's wearing his jersey shoulder pads and his jock, nothing else. Look at this. And he points at his leg. I said, oh, my God. It was swelled out from being hit in the thigh. He goes, touch it. So I'm like, okay. I touched it. He, I said, that's ridiculous because it was swelled up to twice the size from the wow. hip to the knee. And I said, have you ever had that before? He goes, oh, yeah, it happens a lot. And I said, wow. man, how long is it going to take? Probably a couple weeks. But the problem was, in a normal week, they would have wanted him back on the field on Wednesday. Right. Preparing for the next opponent. So the fact that he's not going to have to deal with that, Peter, I'm trying to drive out here. I'm getting a little long-winded. But the fact that he's not going to have to deal with that has lifted a burden off of his shoulders. From the people I've spoken to who are close to him, he's at great peace with the decision. So let's. I want to go back to last April. And I want to ask, because I'm going to tell you the impression that I have of what happened last April. And you correct me if I'm wrong. Sure. Okay. So Rob Gronkowski, uh, Bill Belichick basically talks to Bob Quinn and Matt Patricia. Uh, maybe Nick Casario is involved. However it happens, the Patriots agree to trade Rob Gronkowski to the Detroit Lions for whatever. Let's maybe for a two or a three. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Okay, they agree to make this trade. And then Gronkowski, my impression has been, and kind of what he said is, I'm not playing with a quarterback other than Tom Brady. And so if you do this, if you make this trade, I'm not playing anymore. Nothing against Matthew Stafford, but I'm either playing with Tom Brady or I'm not playing football. And the trade then just quietly went away. What? How do you understand the story of exactly what happened? Things had gone so far sideways during the 2017 season that the agitation between Brady and Gronkowski and Belichick is pretty well documented. But when they went on, I've called it wildcat strike, and weren't going to OTAs, etc., that was one thing. But I think when Gronk got to a point where he was almost challenging the Patriots to do something. You know, he held a press conference on a Saturday while the guys are doing OTAs 15 feet down the road, down the 
the hallway because it was a Gillette Stadium motocross event. <clears throat> he shows up in the stadium, in the Patriots media room, you know, with a motocross helmet on. And that, I think, is the point at which they said, you know what, what are we doing, Grunk? And yes, I've had it told to me, too, that that was more saber-rattling to, to scare him, that we'll, tra we'll trade you if you don't cut the shit. Whether that's the case or whether they were genuine about it, your recitation of what you know to be the facts are accurate as far as I know them. I'll you know what is always funny? You know I'll what? amplify it. This, this dude, yeah. though, um, my understanding is as well that Tom Brady felt the same way. Trey Gronk, you might want to find another quarterback. You don't want to try. You don't want to try what, and find out what happens if you trade him. You know, okay, so now let's fast forward to now. I have to think in the last week, we're recording this on a Tuesday, about a week after I believe that Gronk started telling those closest to him that he was going to retire. And I have to believe that Tom Brady is angry. Not necessarily, I mean, hey, I, he wants the best for Rob Gronkowski, don't get me wrong, but that somehow, someway, all these events happened, and the last tight end standing, Jared Cook, last week at some point reached a verbal agreement with the New Orleans Saints. The Patriots had been talking to him, so now the Patriots really wanted two guys this offseason, my understanding. Adam Humphreys, the slot receiver, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Patriots, I guess, offered him more money than Tennessee did, but he went to Tennessee. And now Jared Cook. They certainly wanted Jared Cook, but how can they bid top dollar for Jared Cook knowing that, okay, we got Rob Gronkowski coming back. We can't devote $23 million mm -hmm. to tight ends. So, so now the Patriots are basically thinking, you know, Nick Casario, Bill Belichick, Tom Brady. What in the world has happened to us now? Look at our roster of skill players. Our running backs are okay. Everything else is from hunger. So tell me right now what you believe as a veteran guy on this beat that Tom Brady is thinking and Bill Belichick. What is he thinking? Well, Tom Brady's thinking the same shit, different day. This is ever thus. Last year, the people that they threw at the position were Jordan Matthews, Kenny Britt. Um, neither one made it out. Malcolm Mitchell, uh, a nice player, but injured the previous year, wasn't able to, to make it out and retired last week. So they try and get by and have for a long time on, you know, a shoestring budget. So it's where I think Tom Brady and, and probably to a degree Josh McDaniels too are their own worst enemies in that they can make chicken salad out of chicken poop. And would Bill ever enter a year in which his secondary was so depleted with people that he was just grabbing guys who were not nailed down and say he'll play cornerback for us or linebacker or defensive line? Of course not. But they do it at wide receiver. And they've done that. Bruce Ellington, Maurice Harris, um, joining Edelman, who's 32, 33. So, yeah, I think that Brady might be irritated, exhausted, exasperated, but he also knows that they will continue to mine for something, whether it be via trade or in free agency still or in the draft. But I think, Peter, too, that the people on offense still look at it as, oh, this is what we do. This is how we do it. We make it difficult on offense. And Tom and Josh eventually figure it out and fix it. 
and that's just the nature of what their business is. But we're talking not, and, and that's what happened in 2018. The Patriots had such great success despite a diminished offensive roster to the point where they had to sign a guy in Josh Gordon halfway through the year who was the ultimate X factor. Yeah. And, but people are now cowed by the idea that, well, they could even win a Super Bowl when they're that diminished. We got a, we got a lift coming by. Um, but I think that people are of a mind that, well, if they could do it then, they can always do it. And I just don't know if that's necessarily the truth. You know, what Brian Flores did with that defense last year, the way Trey Flowers played, the fact that Dante Hightower was healthy, the fact that the entire team was healthy is what led to them being able to go 11-5 and five and roll through the playoffs. The team was the healthiest team I've ever friggin' seen yeah. to go into the postseason. You can't bet on those things. So when we say this isn't good and people say, well, it wasn't good last year and they still won, there were a confluence of circumstances that made that happen. Yeah. Support for the Peter King Podcast comes from Wix.com. With Wix, you can create your very own professional website. Choose a template you love. Customize it by adding your own text, images, and videos. With hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your story exactly the way you want. You want even more for your website? You can easily start a blog, launch an online store, or create an event. You share everything in a click on social media and drive even more traffic to your site with SEO tools to get found on Google. Wix has all the tools you need to create the exact website you want. You can even create a beautiful website while listening to this podcast. Over 140 million people choose Wix to create their website. So create yours today. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash Peter King to get 10% off. Wix.com slash Peter King. So, Tom, in your mind, I, I mean, every, so many times you've looked at the Patriots and you have thought, well, okay, this is, this is too hard a road to navigate. Sure. Um, I don't, I, I'm probably, because I've seen it happen so many times, I don't, I'm still not saying it. I'm still not saying it. I still think... Dante Scarnecchia comes back sure. and coaches a, a, a bunch of guys into being a cohesive, good offensive line. I just, I still do not believe we're at the time of it being a fire drill. I, I still think they're going to be okay. Disabuse me of that notion. It was a fire drill last year. Cordero Patterson was their lead back for a series of about three games after Jeremy Hill got hurt, didn't play. Sonny Michelle got hurt. And now Cordero Patterson was their lead back along with James White, who has no business being a first, second, and third, and, and second down back. Yeah. So you can't see those things happening. And again, they make it work somehow. And that's the ingenuity of that team. I, I, I don't want to say to you that uh, this is a 7-9 and nine team in the making. What it is, though, is a team that also benefits from just the continuity on offense between McDaniels, Brady, Edelman, the ability to, to be innovative offensively or defensively because they, they're just not afraid of losing their jobs. And quite honestly, the fact that so many other teams in the AFC are in constant renovation and they can't compete 
as head coaches or as programs with the Patriots because the Patriots are in place all the time. Look at, you know, Adam Gase has talent around him, but it's going to take a while to implement that structure and culture in New York. Brian Flores has a teardown job that he's going to yeah. try and rehabilitate. The Bills, I, I don't hate the Bills, but I think that the quarterback is going to be an issue all the way through. Yeah. You look at Kansas City, their best competition. Well, Kansas City has lost Kareem Hunt. They might lose Tyreek Hill, and their defense was an embarrassment. So what are the teams? And their top three pass rushers in the last two years are all gone. So <laughs> Yeah, so you look at the Patriots and say, wow, it's going to be an uphill climb for them. Over who? That's that, a good point. The yeah. Cleveland Browns. Exactly. Which would be great. That would be great. Is that the opener great. you want to see? I don't. Or do you I, want the Chiefs? I, Sunday night opener. No, you it's the not. Chiefs or the Chiefs or, or the Browns? Mark my words. It will not be Cleveland at New England. It will not be Kansas City at New England. It won't be both. And I'll give you my theory why. My theories. The last four years, when the schedule comes out, I've been able to sit with Howard Katz at the NFL office and his scheduling team. And I've learned a few things have gone into my head. Number one, upset, surprise, next really cool team that they want to get into some national games. Don't put them on the road early. In a game that's tough to win. Where they get their asses handed to them. Don't do that. So that's why this is just me. I, I will be very surprised if it's Cleveland. Number two, the last two years, the Kansas City Chiefs have met the New England Patriots on in a prime time huge game on NBC at night. Not going to happen a third year in a row. My thought. And Is the reasoning behind that, because it's a share the wealth idea, because it's a ratings bonanza to put Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes. They don't need to do that in the first game of the season. Okay. They're going to get a great number the first week of the season, almost regardless. Let's say they put, I, mean, I, I don't know what they're going to do. Let's say it's Dallas. Okay. Dallas is an intriguing game just because it's Dallas. That could be a possibility. I doubt sincerely it'll be the Giants. I will not be shocked if it's the New York Jets. Yeah, I was saying because Le'Veon Bell, there will be a tremendous number of eyes who want to see Le'Veon Bell in his first game with the Jets. So, but I don't think Cleveland. I don't think Kansas City. Uh, what they have Pittsburgh too, right? Is Pittsburgh a home Pittsburgh, game or Pittsburgh is road? I I would have to check. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. But but well, I, if they have Cleveland, they have Pittsburgh. Right. Well, they're, so they're at the Cincinnati North. and at Baltimore. They're, they do have Pittsburgh at home because they're at Cincinnati and at Baltimore. But but I think just my gut feeling, if I had to guess right now, if I had to pick one out of a hat, I would say Dallas. But that's just my guess. I like um, Dallas. That's, that's, that's a good bet. Um, okay. Three other Patriot-related things just scattershot out of the clear blue sky. What will the average Patriots fan think? If slash when Robert Kraft is suspended for four, six, eight games by Roger Goodell, suspended for some period of time for this South Florida transgression. That it's an embarrassment and an outrage and using an Uzi to kill a mosquito. That it's the same way with certainly with Deflategate, that it is turning jaywalking into vehicular manslaughter. I mean, it's just, um, you know, when the details of this transgression 
are really investigated and the notion that the authorities put forth first was that you know there's human trafficking and sexual slavery etc and it comes to pass that the people with whom he was had a tryst were a 35 year old and a 58 year old co-owners of this facility and he's a 77 year old widower i think that the embarrassment of the situation certainly would be penalty enough so again why are we what's what's with the overkill it's not like the Jim Irsay situation where he had uh, was driving under the influence, putting others at risk. Uh, I'll, I'll give you my feeling. Sure. Anyway, all right. He violated the law. Whatever you think of the law, it would be the same thing at this gorgeous hotel. I'm here representing NBC. If I walked in the lobby of the Arizona Biltmore Hotel as a representative of NBC smoking a marijuana cigarette, Everybody would say, oh, my God, what idiotic judgment that is. Sure, it's not the worst thing in the world, but uh, it's, and it, and who really cares if somebody smokes pot? Nobody really cares. The fact is, in the state of Arizona, it's illegal. If you're doing something illegal, uh, you're subject to whatever. Let me ask you this then. Yeah. Say you don't do it in the lobby, but you do it out by the... Wherever you do facilities. it, if, if somebody finds you and you get arrested, you have violated the law. It's Certainly. Like, and I understand it, what you're yeah. saying. It's a, but, and, so, and my other thing is... But he wasn't flouting the law, necessarily. Well, how do you uh, account for the fact that Robert Kraft, apparently, according to police, did this on a Saturday evening, left the facility, was stopped by the police had a police officer look at his identification and then the next day do the exact same thing. And I do believe that in this police investigation, he's the only male to have been caught twice. I believe that, but I'm not positive. Mm -hmm. It's very poor judgment. And it's also this sort of embarrassment for the NFL, um, which says that owners club officials, coaches, everything. They're supposed to be held to a higher and, standard. And I understand. And, and the last thing I would say is, last thing I would say is, all of that, and then you know that if it happens to one of the pillars of the National Football League, that people in the media are going to go wild. Two consecutive nights, 8.2 million people who watch NBC Nightly News watch the NBC Nightly News, and Lester Holt led the newscast with the story of Robert Kraft uh, being cited for solicitation. Your, your initial question to me was, how would New England Yes, react? yeah, yeah. And all of what you state is accurate from your vantage point and certainly will be shared by many people. I just don't see the upside of putting a 77-year-old man in the public stockade for everybody to walk past and point at just so that the league feels better about having put someone in the stockade. That's, that's how I feel, and I, yeah. think that, I think that's how New England would feel. He can't do nothing, but does it rise to the level of a half-year suspension? I don't think it I, – if I, I, I were mean, him, just knowing what, and knowing I everything do, I know. I just do two games. I, th- I think he's going to get whacked for whatever, some period of <clears> games. But, but I, I just don't think it should rise to the level of what Jim Irsay's yeah. transgression – ended up rising to it's just not the same yeah. classification and i, I know it. that i know that robert has positioned himself over the years as a uh an out front owner yeah so i think that's that's where will my feeling is will josh mcdaniels the offensive coordinator of the patriots who has done a phenomenal job will josh mcdaniels be a head coach in the nfl again yes 
He will. In New England or elsewhere? I'd say that's a coin flip because I don't think Bill shows any absolutely any sign of walking sign. away. No. Yeah. No, I mean, we, we were with him this morning, at, uh, and he was in prime Bill Belichick form at the coach's breakfast here on Tuesday morning, um, deflecting and deferring and moving on from and not dealing in hypotheticals and for 45 minutes straight before he said, thanks, thanks for everything. We'll see you later. Um, Can I, I give you my theory about Belichick? Certainly. I want to, I, and I want to hear your thoughts. So a couple of years ago, you know, Chris Sims worked as whatever offensive quality control yep. for like a year. And uh, so he was around Belichick a lot. And I said, how much longer do you think he'll coach? And he said, a long time. I said, why? And he goes, because he's about the only person I've ever seen do that job. I think you'll appreciate my ringtone. Let's hear it. Oh, I like that. They have different ringtones. Yeah. But this one relaxes me. I like that. My brother has a fire horn that rings when his wife calls. (laughs) (laughs) So I had to go with Bobby Darren. You had to go with Bobby Darren. Um, and my my theory basically extends to the fact that that uh, you know one of the things Sims said that if it's May twelfth mm. or a playoff weekend, he's exactly the same. He does not get stressed out. And I think back to the Seattle Super Bowl, mm. to the last minute where we're all screaming at the at the thing. Call a friggin' timeout. Call a timeout. But he was using that time to his advantage in the last minute of the game because he knew that the Seattle Seahawks were crapping their pants mm-hmm. trying to figure out what they were going to call. And then at the last second, Malcolm Butler runs onto the field and they put a different defense in than the Seahawks thought they might use. And so he said, why give them the time? I have confidence in what we're yeah. doing. And it's just, he was... Now, who knows? Maybe his heart been. is beating 130 beats a minute. I don't know. But he seems so placid as he coaches. It's amazing is <clears throat> that the ability to be outside yourself and to slow time down to the level of focus that he's able to exert in a, in a situation like that. And it's, I think, born of the fact that you've done it for 35 years and at the highest level where, well, this is my fourth Super Bowl at that juncture. And I can make this decision. And I can slow it down because I'm not going to lose my job. And my reputation is sealed. It's not as if this is going to be in my obituary. <clears throat> what happens in the next three minutes? Yeah. It'll be a component of it. So I think that that life experience makes what we look at as incredible moments for him. They are somewhat routine. And I think that's also what makes a decision like 2017 with Malcolm Butler that again would lead an obituary you know for another coach you mean to bench Malcolm Butler for the Super Bowl yeah you know Joe Jones head coach of the Super Bowl team that decided to bench its you know cornerback and then allowed 41 points and 477 yards passing to a former backup quarterback passed away today it's not gonna even it'll be in the ninth paragraph of Bill Belichick's obituary maybe the 90th paragraph I mean you know and we move on we move on and that was something I I wrote about at the Super Bowl we moved on we talked about it all off season last year and then when and even Gerard Mayo who I do a podcast with said you know there will be a point at which players will look at Bill and say can I 
can I trust the decisions he's going to make? This is one of the most influential Patriots he's ever had. His, you know, yeah. Gerard Belichick. And even Gerard said it's going to be hard for players to, to look at that, that decision and get past it. And they did. Yeah. And so the upshot is what, to, Bill will keep doing it. And one other aspect is uh, about Bill <coughs> that is related to what Chris said. If you say, Bill, it's April 18th. And it's two in the afternoon. What are you doing? And he'll have an answer because he is on that cyclical, oh, well, if it's April 18th and it's a Thursday, then I'm doing X. If it's May 31st, well, I'm on Nantucket. If it's July 5th, we're probably doing X, Y, or Z. And, and his life is compartmentalized and organized to that degree. Don't you think, like, I've often thought that he was pretty much the same coach in Cleveland as he is here. And... There's a quote that I've always sort of regurgitated from co- covering the Giants in the 80s for four years. And Bill Parcells always used to say, players treat you different when you got the pelts on the wall. So in other words, if you've won big games, if you've won a Super Bowl, the players, whether they really like you or not, or whether they really like playing for you, they've got to trust you because they understand that the decisions you've made have at least one time led to your team winning a Super Bowl. So, so Bill, I'm not sure. I think he might be a little, he's certainly smarter and all that stuff by life experience, football experience, but I'm really not sure he's all that much different than he was in Cleveland. But the fact is players look at him now and say, he knows how to do it. So if I want to win, I'm going there. It strikes me that way with like, you know, when I saw Adrian Claiborne left, when I see Chris mm-hmm. Long leave, when I see some of these guys leave, it's almost like, okay, I got my championship. Now I might go to another place where I actually, whether I might have a little more fun or it might be a little bit more relaxing, whatever the thing is, it's just different. And so I just think maybe he really hasn't, changed all that much but it's just the fact that he's won and now if you play for him you know he knows what he's doing isn't it all about buy-in no matter where you are yes yeah and how devoted the players will be to trusting what your decisions are yeah and i I think that that's one of the interesting things about the way the patriots have constructed their team he said to urban meyer a couple years ago and urban meyer recounted it at ohio state i don't want to coach people who i don't like to be around anymore so who are the people you like to be around? The people you like to be around are the ones <clears throat> who will show up <clears throat> excuse me, on time for work with their pencil sharpened and ready to go and will be able to adapt on a week-to-week basis and not say, well, how come I'm doing this? You said I'd be able to do this. It's the giant, that's the Odell Beckham theory with the New York Giants. Could they have <clears throat> made it work? Yes. Did they want to make it work if they had to? But... Did they really want him on their team? I don't think so. And that's the thing, you know, would Odell Beckham <clears throat> be a different person, different player, if it wasn't Pat Shermer and it was Bill Belichick? Well, no disrespect to Pat Shermer, but maybe because an individual can work for a different boss and say, mm, this guy might seem unconventional, but I do know he knows what he's doing. Yeah. Whereas once Pat Shermer has the success that you probably feel he'll have, <clears throat> and most people would, and the Giants feel he'll have, then he'll have the sway in which he can look at Odell and say, trust me on this. Just do it the way I'm telling you to. Yeah. Uh, Last thing. Will Josh Gordon, just gut feeling, do you think he plays some 
a lot for the Patriots in 2019? I do. Or not at all? I, no, I think he'll play some. I think that the NFL has, <clears throat> in an interesting way, taken him on as kind of a pet cause. It does seem that. Uh, you know, it seems that instead of just throwing him out the window, they're really trying <clears throat> to help this guy. And I think that, that the Patriots have, damn, I'm sorry for the <clears throat> clearing of the throat, yep. have extended themselves. Brady's extended himself. And it's, it is so hard for a guy like that. Um, and we can have conversations about whether too many chances are given to a player or whether not enough have been given to him. But, you know, when you get a guy who's making $700,000, which is what he was making last year, still hasn't hit free agency despite coming into the league in 2013, <clears throat> and he is then shipped to Foxborough, Massachusetts in the cold to live in a hotel a mile away with a full-time supervisor, and you've already got maybe some self-esteem and mental health issues and substance abuse issues, you are going to be a ticking time bomb. And I understand, and I think it's good that the NFL recognizes that, look, we're going to try and help them along. Because I don't think people should be treated as chattel. Yeah, there's a million chances given to the guy. Yeah. And if it wasn't for the talent, he wouldn't be given the chances to a degree. Yeah. But... It's just, it's a conversation I think it's okay to have about, because we are trying to be more aware of individuals' mental health and substance abuse issues at, at every level, every stripe, whether you're a professional athlete, a sports writer, uh, a CEO, in your decision-making. We started by talking about Robert Kraft, and we, that was mixed in here. I think that we have to be cognizant that we all have little brains in our head that make us make decisions. Last question. Over under right now, how many more seasons will Tom Brady play football? I'd put the over under at two. That way we can get money on both sides. If they go seven and nine this year, could I foresee him saying, you know, I don't really know if I want to do it? I doubt that because he's going to get a contract redone before training camp begins. So there'll be an agreement that he plays in 19, which he was already contractually obligated to do. And I'm guessing 20 and 21 will be the other years so I'd put it at two the question Peter and I gotta go do some writing is will he play with Rob Gronkowski again in 2020 and I think or the end of 2019 I've always wondered this about Tom Brady I've always wondered <clears throat> if he has if he is convinced he has something left in the tank oh I think he is would he go oh would he go and play for the you know for the whatever the uh, Anchorage Aardvarks for one year because he did not want to be shown the door I think that there was a point when I, I really think a lot of progress was made last year in the relationship between Belichick and, and Brady um, where I don't think he would do things out of spite Tom would you didn't believe in me in 2014. You tried to replace me with Jimmy. You never, you know, you wanted me out of here. And I <clears throat> made you change your entire plan. Right. And there was resentment, I think, about that. But I think that they built a bridge between themselves in 2018. Thanks mainly to Belichick. Yeah. Um, and I just, I think previously he would have been prone to do that out of spite. I'll show these guys. Uh, but now you believe, now I believe when he finishes in New England, he'll yeah, be finished. Yeah. I do. 
It's very interesting. Tom Curran, so <laughs> wonderful for you to spend all this time, and I really appreciate it. And I would really, at some point, like to return the Home and Home podcast favor. Oh, that would be yeah, great. You know, <laughs> and this is, uh, <clears throat> for those of you who have stuck with us this long and put up with my gargling over here. In 2006, I was at the, uh, the Providence Journal, and I was lucky. And, and that's one thing about covering teams. You covered the Giants when, in their heyday. I covered the Patriots during the, their heyday. It's good for your career to be in the right place at the right time. Yes. And as a result, because I was there on that beat, and the Internet wasn't what the Internet is now, there were just a, a limited number of people covering it. And Peter would read my stuff, and that's how Peter came to know my stuff and recommend me to NBC when NBCSports.com was starting up in 2006. So it's, I will never, ever, ever confuse myself with being more talented than I have been lucky. Incredibly lucky to cover the Patriots during this period of time and have the opportunity for people who I looked up to like you, read my shit, put it in front of other people and say, this guy's pretty good, hire him. Because those are the things that, that, you know, you look back. And well, here's the, here's the thing, Tom. The reason that I did that is because you really have, you understand sort of the New England ethos. There's some guys who, when they work in New England, um, it's, a, it's a demanding job. A demanding job and an extremely difficult team to cover. Very, not only very uh, competitive, which it is, but the other part of it is, you know, for people, you can't do it in a, even in an hour podcast, but, but covering the New England Patriots with the obstacles that are put in front of you is a difficult thing because the players all want to just get in line. They never want to say anything. It's you, you can't really get the color. You can't find out who the players are necessarily. Sure. And so it's just, it's very hard. But one of the reasons why you've been good at it is you stand up to people and you are not afraid to call people out when, or write very critical things when you deem them important and most important in a on a beat like that you're not a homer that is a vitally important personality trait to have when you're covering a team that a lot of people who read you and experience you they want you to be as big a fan as they are and 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 you can't be no and it's funny because i do get criticized for being you know, a, a Patriots homer, a honk, or whatever else, and the people say, you know what, you know, stop with the Brady love. And I'm like, look, if I f- sound like I'm worshiping in the altar of Tom Brady or Bill Belichick of the Patriots, I could pick a worse team to be fawning over. Yeah. I mean, it's the greatest quarterback of all time and perhaps one of the greatest runs in professional sports. When they do something moronic or their judgment is poor, whether it be Malcolm Butler in 2018, in my opinion, in the Super Bowl, or whether it be Robert Kraft at the, you know, Orchids of Asia, you have to say it. Yeah. And say it in a way that allows you afterwards to be able to look him in the eye and say, I didn't take a lot of cheap shots. Yeah. I just questioned what you did. Yeah. Tom well, thank Curran, you. thank you very much. Thanks to my guest, Kyle Shanahan of the 49ers, Sean Payton of the Saints, Andy Reid of the Chiefs, and Tom Curran of NBC Boston. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in my podcast series, such as my conversations with Roger Goodell, Larry Fitzgerald, and Brian Flores. 
You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review while you're there. You can also hear the Peter King Podcast on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning at 7 Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 82. Thanks to the fine folks at Cadence 13 for their production work while I'm on the road. And thanks also to my sponsors, Wix, Bet, DSI, and Manscaped. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you back in New York next week.